Do you ever wonder how novelists come up with their characters? Like, whether they're based on real people? Or maybe they're just totally made up? Well, what you're about to hear from this legendary children's book writer might come as a surprise. Beverly Cleary says that her popular character, Ramona, just sort of happened. She's really an accidental character. It was the 1950s, and Beverly was writing the Henry Huggins series. And somehow, she got the idea that one of Henry's friends, Beezus, could use a little sister. When I was writing the Henry books, it occurred to me that all the children appeared to be only children. So I tossed in a little sister, and at the moment I needed a name, a neighbor called out Ramona to another neighbor, and so I just named her Ramona. (laughs) Eventually, Beverly Cleary saw the potential in this accidental little sister. She took a big risk and spun off Ramona into her very own series of eight books published between 1955 and 1999. The actual Ramona that I think might have inspired me was a little girl who lived near us, She was considered rather impossible, and I have a vivid memory of her coming home from the grocery store. In those days, children could be sent to the store. And she had a pound of butter, which she had opened, and she was just eating the pound of butter. (laughs) And somehow, that little girl became Ramona, although Ramona never ate a pound of butter. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. And on today's show, you guessed it, we're talking about Ramona, Beverly Cleary's character who broke the mold of children's literature for what a little girl should be. She does not learn to be a better girl. I was so annoyed with the books in my childhood because children always learn to be better children. And in my experience, they didn't. They just grew. (laughs) And so... I started Ramona, and she has never reformed. Writing stories with morals just wasn't Beverly Cleary's thing. And we talked about this on episode four of Remember Reading with writer Leslie Connor in context of one of Beverly's other classics, The Mouse and the Motorcycle. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, go back and check it out. As for today's show, we're going to focus on how Beverly Cleary writes about ordinary situations in the Ramona books. The series captures the ups and downs of growing up, going to school, and everyday family life in America. And as part of our exploration, we've invited three current writers to give us their take on Ramona, including Julie Murphy, the author behind the best-selling coming-of-age novel, Dumplin'. The fact that I, an adult who had never read Ramona, could read these books for the very first time and find them so, like, fresh. Ramona is really, like, well-meaning and well-intentioned, and she's really just trying to, like, navigate her world in a very real way. And I just think that that's something that's really universal and really relatable. Besides Julie, we're going to hear from Rita Williams-Garcia, who's won the Newbery Honor, and the acclaimed writer and illustrator... Dan Yaccarino. They'll tell us stories from their childhoods and what the Ramona books mean to them. We'll also hear about the characters that they like to write about in their books. But before we turn to Rita, Julie, and Dan, let's find out some more about Beverly Cleary and what motivated her as a writer. 
The first thing you should know about Beverly is that she actually struggled with reading as a child. But then she made some breakthroughs around third grade. When I was in grammar school, I sometimes felt that school didn't want us to read because there were long questions after everything we read or we had to write um, book reviews and give the theme of a book. I hate, that was the question I hated the most. What is the theme of this book? I just wanted to read a book and enjoy it. And I think that's what children should do. At home, Beverly's mother made books enjoyable by reading aloud to her every night. And Beverly grew up with the desire to write stories someday that kids would love and could relate to. Eventually, she went on to become a librarian, a writer, and a parent of a child who, like herself as a kid, was a reluctant reader. And throughout her career, Beverly advocated for the idea of reading for pleasure and brilliantly worked it into her 1981 book, Ramona Quimby, Age 8, which is the sixth installment of the Ramona series and a Newbery Honor winner. Here's Beverly reading that part of her book where she introduces readers to the concept of deer, or D-E-A-R, as you're about to hear. Just before her class was to make its weekly visit to the school library, Mrs. Whaley announced, Today and from now on, we're going to have sustained silent reading every day. Ramona liked the sound of sustained silent reading, even though she was not sure what it meant, because it sounded important. Mrs. Whaley continued, This means that every day after lunch, we're going to sit at our desks and read silently to ourselves any book we choose from the library. Even mysteries, somebody asked. Even mysteries, said Mrs. Whaley. Do we have to give book reports on what we read, asked one suspicious member of the class. No book reports on your sustained silent reading books, Mrs. Whaley promised. Then she went on. I don't think sustained silent reading sounds very interesting, so I, th- I think we will call it something else. Here she printed four letters on the blackboard, and as she pointed out, she read D-E-A-R. Can anyone guess what these letters stand for? The class thought and thought. Do everything all right, suggested someone. A good thought, but not the right answer. Don't eat a reader, suggested Yardy. Mrs. Whaley laughed and told him to try again. As Ramona thought, she stared out the window at the blue sky, the treetops, and in the distance, the snow-capped peak of Mount Hood, looking like a giant licked ice cream cone. R could stand for run, A for and. Drop everything and run, Ramona burst out. Mrs. Whaley, who was not the sort of teacher who expected everyone to raise a hand before speaking, laughed and said, all right, Ramona, have you forgotten? Uh, We are talking about reading. Drop everything and read, chorused the rest of the class. Ramona felt silly. She should have thought of that herself. Perhaps a simple concept, but a powerful one nonetheless, as Beverly Cleary gives her readers an entertaining story, but also empowers them at the same time to adopt, drop everything and read into their own lives. And nearly 40 years later, we're still celebrating the idea There's even a national drop everything and read day every year on Beverly Cleary's birthday, April 12th, which, by the way, she did celebrate in 2019 on her 103rd birthday. What? What? 
Throughout the Ramona series, we readers get to accompany Ramona as she grows up. In book one of the series, Beezus and Ramona, we meet Ramona at the age of four. Although the book came out in 1955, Cleary does not present Ramona as the picture-perfect 1950s girl you might expect. Here's Beverly reading from the first few lines of the book. Beatrice Quimby's biggest problem was her little sister Ramona. Beatrice, or Beezus as everyone called her because that was what Ramona had called her when she first learned to talk, knew other nine-year-old girls who had little sisters who went to nursery school, but she did not know anyone with a little sister like Ramona. Beezus felt the biggest trouble with four-year-old Ramona was that she was just plain exasperating. Ramona continues to be exasperating throughout the rest of the series, but we do see her mature gradually as she straddles the line between being a kid and taking on increasing responsibilities at home, especially after her parents have a third child named Roberta, and Ramona becomes a big sister. By the eighth and final book, Ramona's World, she turns 10, and she finally has a best friend. When you look at the series as a whole, you can really see how Beverly Cleary masterfully maintains Ramona's character over time as someone who's genuine, unique, and seemingly a nonconformist. But on the flip side, you can also see the ways in which Ramona is sometimes misunderstood by her friends, family, teachers, neighbors, and other community members. She's really not a nutty child, in spite of the title of Ramona the Pest. Her intentions are good, but she has a lot of imagination, and things sometimes don't turn out the way she had expected. While reading the books, we get to see Ramona grow up in the context of her family, the Quimby's. And for the acclaimed writer Rita Williams-Garcia, the series is really about how we work in our families, and that everybody kind of has a role If you think about family as being a kind of a car, not a brand new car, but kind of like, you know, it's been on the road and it's kind of jumbling along, rumbling along, but it gets there. And, you know, there are stops on the road. There's hiccups and um, frustration, um, but we get there. Rita especially loves all the hiccups and frustrations that Beverly Cleary brings to life in ways she finds to be both respectful and humorous. Mom really puts the brakes on Ramona at times, whereas with Dad, you know, that's her pal, her buddy. And so, you know, you get to see how the family works with the kids and allows them to kind of struggle and push up and rebel a little, but also to know that they are loved and that they have a secure place to develop, to grow, which is what children need, you know. And I think Cleary's books do that. I think they provide that. Out of all the Ramona books, Rita especially loves Ramona Quimby, age eight, as it really conveys the emotions that we might remember going through as kids. I like seeing Ramona just a little older, so we can get a lot more out of her thought process and and how she sees the world and how she sees herself in the world. And, you know, that poor kind of no matter what she does, it's wrong. It's not fair. <laughs> She's really not trying to be such a pest. 
but it's the world of a child. Everything has these massive repercussions and that no one hears you when you're on top of that mountain shouting of the injustice and they tell you to get over it. Life is unfair. (laughs) And I just love the way how Beverly does that without being very heavy-handed about it, without feeling the need to do the and the moral of the story kind of thing because she trusts the reader to just get it, just be there with Ramona and all that she's going through and to see things from her side. There's one memorable moment that Rita recalls from the book, and it's an embarrassing one. Ramona wants to be like the other kids at lunch who are cracking hard-boiled eggs on their heads. She gets her mom to pack her an egg one day, but her mom mistakenly grabs a raw, uncooked egg. You can guess what happens next. But one of the scenes from Ramona Quimby, AJ, that stands out most for Rita is the restaurant scene where the older gentleman pays for their meal. When you've read all the books, you know how much the family is struggling. I love that Cleary does this with the American family, that it's not all just, uh, here's the family and we don't have to worry about or know about how they're eating and how they're getting to work and all of those things. It's just taken for granted. But because she wrote about a real family in that sense of there's warmth, but there's struggle, you know, we can relate. We can not feel badly about where we're coming from. Maybe we don't have all the comforts of home, but you see that even with mother and father intact, that they are struggling, that uh, father is trying to make it, and they're not there yet. And, oh, when is this going to end? You can see the frustration on Bezos's face, and she just kind of wants to be like everybody else, but maybe not really, you know. And they're all just kind of holding it together, even through all their trials. And at the heart of it is Ramona kind of quacking and making sounds and kind of being that spark plug, but also that pest in the center, keeping everything going. Farida, family dynamics feature prominently in her books and speak to her desire to create relatable yet sometimes complicated characters. And so I always wanted to be able to do that with books and to write relatable characters, to write characters who were like maybe had little spots of ugly on their soul. But, you know, they were just works in progress and just kind of pushing against what's around them and trying to just be themselves. And I think having read characters that really do struggle and families that are really going through everyday hard times. Those are the kinds of characters that I like to write about. I like those very real characters that somewhere there is a center, somewhere there is something redeemable and likable, although you might have to really work a little to find that within the characters. Growing up, 
Rita says that she was an army brat, and her family moved around a lot. In California, she remembers playing outside, whereas in New York, she remembers being inside a lot. And starting in kindergarten, she took to making her own little books. But it really wasn't until middle school that she started writing seriously. So my best friend was my notepad. So, okay, I had many notepads, many friends. I had a small memo book that I used to just write, like, well, my my thoughts. Then I had a book that I had my publishing strategies in because I would read, like, the writer's market, the writer's handbook, so I'd learn who the editors were and what they wanted and all of that, and I'd write little notes to myself. I kept a diary And that's where my crushes, my TV guide, the family fights, and a little bit of history went into that stuff. Rita's early passion for writing seems to have paid off, as she eventually made her way to becoming an acclaimed author today. Her novel, One Crazy Summer, won the prestigious Newbery Honor, along with a Coretta Scott King Award, the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction, an ALA Best Fiction for Young Adult Award. It was also recognized as an ALA Notable Children's Book, and it was a National Book Award finalist. Her most recent book, Clayton Berg Goes Underground, was also a National Book Award finalist. So Clayton Bird Goes Underground is a story of, um, I always call it, the blues meets old school hip hop. And it's a story about a boy whose best friend is his grandfather. They are blues musicians together. They sneak out of the house when uh, Clayton's mother and Cool Papa's daughter is away at work. And they go to Washington Square Park and they play the blues with the bluesmen and then sneak back home. Anyway, one night... Clayton feels something is different, and when he wakes up, he finds that his grandfather has passed away. He's not allowed to properly grieve because grandpa and mom have issues, which mom tries to take reign of in her father's passing, and poor Clayton is kind of, he's a casualty of that. And so Clayton takes his harmonica and, I'm sorry, his blues harp, and he goes on the lamb and finds himself in the New York subway system, just encountering all kinds of people, trouble, and some realizations. As Clayton grieves his grandfather, his best friend, he and his mother struggle to understand each other. His mother is resentful of how cool Papa wasn't really around for her when she was growing up. But for Clayton, Cool Papa showed up and provided a source of stability in his life. I like the older characters because I think that they play so well with the younger characters. I think that there's that elasticity between those characters and those experiences and that they're kind of a security and a sign of hopefulness for young people in a certain way that, yes, What you're going through right now is important. It is important, and it will make you who you are when you are one day me, you know, (laughs) when you're one day fully yourself. So I really like that sense of community, having those different generations and, and all of those stories in between. 
And behind this impulse is Rita's desire to write for young readers in a way that can help them better understand themselves. I like writing for this age group for so many reasons. I think there is a part of me that just has not quite grown up. I like to see things become, things on their way of becoming. And every time you see a young person go through an experience or learn something or articulate something, you're seeing a part of them that is growing up and becoming who they're ultimately going to be out in the world. A lot of kids have that early. I mean, there's so many remarkable kids out there doing these great things. But, you know, it's really all about the everyday life struggles and whether you're saving the world or you're remembering to do your homework. We're all trying to get there one step at a time. Which is just the way that childhood goes as kids try to figure out who they are at home, at school, and in the larger world around them. And an author like Cleary really understood this about child development, as she's able to give her readers a mirror into their own lives by writing about ordinary situations that they could relate to. I don't know what I expected when I started this book. I don't know if I was expecting like something perfect and kind of like after school special, but it was just so much more nuanced than I expected. That's Julie Murphy, a best-selling author whose books speak to kids growing up today. She's written primarily for the young adult audience and has a new middle grade novel called Dear Sweet Pea. Julie didn't grow up reading the Ramona books, but she accepted our invitation to read Ramona Quimby, age eight. We thought it would be interesting to get her perspective on the series, given that she and Beverly have written about the complexities of coming of age. And that's something I really love in Ramona, too. Like, I remember as a child feeling like either being like very rowdy or very quiet. Like, there was no in between. I don't know if, if I felt like I had to be funny for people to want to talk to me or to find value in me. But I remember like the deep shame I felt when an adult did not approve of me, especially like an adult in authority, like a teacher. It was so confusing for me and so hard. Like Rita, Julie says that her family moved around a lot. So she got used to being the new kid. And at home, she often spent time alone. My family and I were actually like, always hopping from rental home to rental home. I didn't have a lot of people reading to me as a child, and this was mostly because I was a latchkey kid. You know, I didn't come home to parents who had time and resources to sit down and read to me because, you know, by the time they got home, like, the priority was to make dinner and get me to bed and wake up the next morning and do it all again. And so I remember going through phases of being obsessed with reading where I would walk to the local library and come home with like a shopping bag full of 20 books. But then I also very much remember being like babysat by the TV or whatever else I could like get myself into. As an adult looking back at her childhood, Julie says that she could actually relate to some of the ordinary situations Ramona and her family experienced. I remember those moments of like growing up and my parents pinching pennies and for like for going out to eat to be this event for us or like moments of transition when my parents' lives and roles were changing. I love when Ramona's dad gives her this little pink eraser. I feel like I remember finding like such treasure and really mundane things that my parents would give me mm -hmm. and really valuing them. 
But one of Julie's biggest takeaways from reading Ramona Quimby is... The idea that adults aren't perfect and that your relationship with adults can be nuanced and complicated. And then I also really loved, it was really in like small mentions, but... Ramona has like recently had a growth spurt and the way that people talk about like how large her feet are or how much bigger she is it's never a negative thing and it, Ramona always has these moments of this could possibly be a negative thing and she realizes that no like growing is a good thing and I mean as someone who is like heavily concentrated on body positivity those were also things that I was really excited about and I think that the thing that stuck out to me the most though was the complicated relationships with adults and how especially with our teacher like these relationships are never perfect because adults aren't perfect and having that realization as a child where you realize that the adults in your life are just as lost as you are is a little bit hard and a little bit jarring This notion that adults aren't as perfect as you thought they were is something we can all relate to. And it's a theme Julie gravitates towards in her own books. She's written about things like divorce, grief, changing relationships, romance, and body image. And she was inspired to start writing stories at the end of college after reading the popular series Twilight. She found the Twilight books to be very accessible to someone like herself who stayed away from the classics. And in that same vein, Julie's books have been popular among a broad audience, and her best-selling young adult novel, Dumplin', was made into a Netflix movie, setting the stage for a new type of character who hasn't been traditionally embraced. I always wanted to write a fat girl. I always wanted to write a girl who looked like me and who understood what it meant to move through the world in a body that was different than most people's. And I think that that's also part of the reason why I had a hard time connecting with books growing up is because I never got to see that. I know a lot of people come back to that, that they had a hard time connecting with books because there were never enough brown kids or there were never enough queer kids or whatever it is that marginalizes them. There was never enough of that. But it's really so true and it really, like as a former librarian and now as a writer, it really makes me wonder like how many generations of readers we've alienated because we've not been putting out books and we've not been centering books that are approachable and really reflect the world around us. And so that's where Dumplin' came from, was this like just sheer hunger for wanting to see a girl who looked like me and a girl who looked like me succeed and not have to apologize for who she is or what she is. And to see this girl get everything she wants and maybe not the way she wants it all, but just to see her succeed in that way. In her latest middle grade novel, Dear Sweet Pea, the main character is a seventh grader named Patricia DeMarco, but everyone calls her Sweet Pea. She's fat, but that's not the emphasis of her character. The book instead focuses on how Sweet Pea has to navigate her parents' divorce and all their shortcomings. She also contends with the changing friendships at school and has to prove herself to be responsible for a job that her neighbor, the town's advice columnist, has asked her to do. And I think that the more books that we have about fat characters, the more we'll get to see that, which is just 
fat characters existing and fat characters just living their life and still having to think about their bodies and their fatness a little bit throughout the novel because that's just how life works. You have to think about the things that make you different as those things create challenges and difficulties in your life. And that's really what Sweet Pea does is she has to think about those things momentarily, but it's not the driving force behind the plot. With books like her own breaking new ground, Julie is hopeful about the future of children's literature and is pushing for a new wave of diverse books. I think that in the world of publishing in general is becoming much more democratic, I guess I could say. I think that we're starting to really find more diverse stories and we're starting to you know, get those out into the world. But I think the bigger work in publishing is going to be diversifying all the people behind the scenes and diversifying our gatekeepers, because that's really going to move the conversation forward. I think that that's the road we're headed on right now. I, I really think that, like, you know, diverse editors and diverse librarians, I think that's what we also need to see more of. It's not just about storytellers. It's about the people who are putting the stories in the hands of kids. And as writers, editors, publishers, librarians, educators, and readers hear such calls, the future of classics, like Ramona, is sort of unknown at this point, like whether they'll still be relevant. But as we heard from Rita and Julie, the characters and situations in the Ramona books are relatable, which writer and illustrator Dan Yaccarino also agrees with. In one way, they're archetypes, and in another way, they're extremely specific people. And I don't think the things that are dealt with in these books are very different than what we deal with 50 years later. It's all the same. You may swap out some bits and pieces to keep it contemporary, but honestly, every little kid is like that. But one of the really revolutionary things about the Ramona books is that Ramona is stubborn and manipulative and annoying, and at a time when especially little girls were not supposed to be that way. And it was so wonderful to read these stories and, you know, as an adult, not my kids, but as an adult, understand the depiction of women at that time. Very rigid. You know, if you watch any of those sitcoms like Father Knows Best or something like that, women were, you know, girls were treated like miniature women, you know, like they're sewing and they're obedient and they revere the father and all that stuff. Ramona didn't care. Mm -mm. She did whatever she pleased. She invited all these kids over for a party that, and she didn't tell anybody and all these kids show up, you know, and she had a string that she said was a leash with nothing on the end of it, but she insisted that it was um, a lizard named Ralph. How bizarre and strange and completely the opposite of what probably existed in the media at that time. Kids in general were supposed to be obedient. She wanted to be heard. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. She doesn't understand the limitations or restrictions imposed, uh, you know, that will be imposed on her perhaps someday. Beverly Cleary's portrayal of Beezus and Ramona as siblings especially rings true for Dan. One of the things I really love is the relationship between Ramona and Beezus. And Beezus, in those books, is the classic older sibling. You know, the one that assumes responsibility, mm -hmm. has to sometimes unwillingly take care of or deal with the younger sister. And it's wonderful to see her have this sort of 
ambiguity of her feelings towards her younger sister in Beezus and Ramona, where she's angry at her sister, and she has a problem with those feelings. I love Ramona, but I don't like her sometimes. And that's pretty sophisticated stuff for a second or third or fourth grader to understand the difference between that. And Beverly Cleary put that into the book so seamlessly and so effortlessly that you don't realize what you've learned until you reflect on it. Dan read Beverly Cleary's books to his kids when they were growing up and says that they just loved them. And when he thinks back to his own childhood, he remembers being a reader and having found his niche earlier on in life than most of his peers. Something clicked inside where I got a lot of satisfaction from drawing. And then when other kids went off and did Little League or whatever, I was still that pale kid in his bedroom drawing. (laughs) drawing pictures and tracing and building stuff and blowing it up in the backyard. And that was my childhood. You know, it's just making stuff and destroying things, drawing, making comic books and just trying to learn how to paint and copying other artists because that's what we do. Dan knew that he'd ultimately want to write and illustrate. After high school, he went to art school and eventually got into making books. Dan has since written chapter books and a middle grade novel, but is especially known for picture books that he's done, including Five Little Pumpkins and I Am a Story. With a picture book, it's almost weirdly like a haiku or something, where you have to do so much work with so few words, and then you're really relying on the images. And so what I try to do when I create the picture books is I will try to write the book out in little thumbnail drawings and try to tell that story as clearly and as much as I can just with the images because in a picture book, the pictures tell most of the story. They do most of the heavy lifting and conveying the story. So I try to do as much as I can, but ultimately there are some areas that I am not able to convey visually what's happening or what's going on. That's where the words come in for me. So I know that it's a visually dominant medium. And so I always try to approach it that way. And the other thing I learned was that the pictures are your adjectives and adverbs. They're your descriptive passages. You don't need to put that in the text. You know, the real estate for text in a picture book is very limited. And so for me anyway, I don't really like putting in adverbs or adjectives because that's the illustration's job. As an illustrator and a writer, Dan has noticed the ways in which themes about urban places, cities, and even Manhattan, which is where he lives, have inspired his work. And his latest picture book is called Giant Tess, which captures that sentiment. It takes place in a mythological version of Manhattan called Mythattan. So there are neighborhoods that, much like the neighborhoods in Manhattan, that have different types of mythological creatures like the Lower Beast Side and Centaur Park and things like that. And I just had so much fun with it. And that's a backdrop, really, for a story about a giant. It just felt right, and it sort of all fell together. Dan has produced more than 60 books over the course of his career, and he looks up to Beverly Cleary and aspires to write like her. Dan especially appreciates how sophisticated her stories are. They're straightforward, without any flowery language. That's the power of her writing, is that she found a way 
to delve deep into normal life. And they were a pleasure, absolute pleasure to read. And from that, I completely appreciate her talent and her ability and her craft. Her writing is so sharp and so clear. And there is no high concept. I'm sure that in her very long life, she's heard pretty much every compliment that she could possibly hear. She's had more accolades, you know, but she deserves all of them. And in a way, she is uniquely American in a sort of a strange way. And she has transcended her time period. She's transcended her era, which when she wrote these books, which that's what we all wish for as a writer and illustrator is that your work will last for generations, and hers has already lasted, I don't know how many generations, and that's an incredible tribute to the fact that she can cut through all of this other stuff and get to the humanity of these characters. And that won't change. And while the world of children's books has grown vastly since Beverly started writing more than 50 years ago, today's readers still connect with Ramona. Like, these two eight-year-old kids who recently read the series and shared some of their thoughts with us. Well, I remember that in Beezus and Ramona, the first thing was Ramona wanted to go to the library and she got her favorite book out and she read it and thought when you check out a book, you got to keep the book. She wrote her names on all the pages. Also, I remember in Chapter 5, a party at the Quimby's when Ramona invites her whole class over without telling, and she acts like a two-year-old. Yes, I do remember that. And then I also remember Beezus' birthday, where Ramona was acting like a two-year-old, and she was getting really naughty. So Ramona had to be sent up to her room. In each book, she has a problem that her teachers don't like her, like in kindergarten, first grade, when Mrs. Griggs doesn't like her, and second grade, when Ramona thought that, that Mrs. Raj was dumb because she blamed her for losing her pajamas at school, and Mrs. Wally and Mrs. Meacham don't like her either. And Ramona forever when her father gets a job and they say, oh, we're going to move somewhere in Idaho or somewhere close to there. And Ramona didn't want to move. She wanted to stay in Oregon. She's like me where she has a baby sister and she's feeding her peas and she had all of her faces and she's like, mom, and she's keeping and she's like all over doing so she has to run to the sink and wash her face off. Special thanks to Rita Williams-Garcia, Julie Murphy, and Dan Yaccarino for joining us. You can find out more about their books at rememberreading.com. Have you signed up for our monthly newsletter? Visit RememberReading.com and subscribe today to receive episodes straight to your inbox every month, as well as memorable quotes to share on social media. We'll also feature a fun trivia question that you can find within the episode. When you subscribe, you're even eligible to enter our monthly giveaways where you can win a copy of the featured book. And we want to keep connecting with you on Twitter at ReadingPod. 
We do our best to respond to everyone, so please keep tweeting us. Thank you for all your thoughtful comments on Twitter and Apple Podcasts so far. Whether you're a full-time listener or new to the podcast, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and your message might be featured in the monthly newsletter. Remember Reading's producers are Stephanie Barudas of Cuvenda Media and Irina Jorov. And I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for joining us, and until next time.